folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Psy War, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visibview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-B-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at the Farm Podcast, all one word, the Farm Podcast.store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. Content. The upper tier, you get that in addition to access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meetings, my dispatches from my various journeys across the United States and all the weird hotspots that I hit up, State of the Unions, where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world, and so much more. It's a lot of content, folks, so please consider checking that out. Okay, today's guest is making his maiden appearance on the farm. He has worked and lived in Hollywood for over 20 years in music, film, and TV, and currently does consultant and development work for different networks and production companies on the topics of UFOs, the paranormal, and so much more. He has been involved with projects for Steven Spielberg, J.J. Abrams, and many others. Most recently, he has played a significant role in the documentary A Terror in the Sky. Folks, I give you guys David H. Altman. Dave, thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. Thank you for having me, Recluse. I appreciate it. So we'll be using Dave's recently released documentary A Terror in the Sky as a launching point for this discussion. This concerns the UAPX's UFO investigation to a place listeners of the farm are familiar with, the Santa Catalina Islands. This is at the heart of the farm's Albacore series and the enigmatic club based on Catalina, the Tuna Club of Avalon. For those of you unfamiliar, I became really uh, taken with this concept when I rewatched Chinatown. Uh, there's the mysterious group that the John Houston character Noah Cross is a member of which in the film is the Albacore Club. In real life, this was modeled upon the Tuna Club of Avalon based off of Catalina Island. So this has been at the center of a lot of uh, major players in the development of Hollywood and LA on the whole for many years now. The island is just absolutely integral to the rise of Hollywood and LA, more broadly speaking. So the Catalina Island already has a lot going for it from a parapolitical standpoint. But as I learned while watching A Tear in the Sky, it has an equally incredible legacy of high strangeness. And Dave is here is just the guy to take us through this legacy. So on that note, let us start the show. So the Catalina Islands obviously have quite a storied history. Outside of UFOs, were there reports of other high weirdness there prior to the 21st century, Dave? Oh, man, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it goes back. I mean, 
the probably the most notable uh, one would be Battle of L.A. For or for those who don't know, Battle of L.A. is when uh, an object was seen above the skies in 1942 above L.A. I think I got the year right. It was 4142. I think it was 42. This was at the height of our jitters with World War II. The Army had set up gun gun, gun turrets and all that stuff, artillery for uh they thought they thought the japanese could attack california or just the west coast in general so they're they're on high alert and then all of a sudden a spotlight is is shined on what appears to be a large ufo saucer you know whatever what it was i don't know i mean obviously (laughs) you know anyone's guess could be could be the answer it wasn't shot down after after shooting at this thing for you know I don't know how long it it gradually peeled off and shot down the coast, and when it reached Catalina Island, it made a made a beeline. Uh, I, you know I don't know if it stopped at the island, if it went past, if it went stopped, before, you know which way it went. But if you follow the line down from Los Angeles south, as soon as you hit Catalina Island, it makes a right hand turn, and there you go. Now that's that's stuff that is just mainstream. You can find books. Uh, I, I found one. I, I was very blessed, I would say, with meeting a man named Jim Watson. Let me let me kind of set this up and explain how this happened. So, before, while we while we were doing pre-production on Catalina Island for the for a tear in the sky. I was looking because we had we had two locations in the film. We had Guna at a, at a house location, and then I was on a business location on the island. So I wanted to look into exactly what you know. You you asked me, you know, was there ever anything else happening in that area, and how how far back? So during my own kind of keyboard warrior search at the beginning, I was introduced to a man named Jim Watson. And Jim is the editor of the Catalina Island newspaper. And it just happened to turn out that Jim wrote a book and I suggest everybody get it. I'm sure you would love it, Stephen. It's called Mysterious Island Catalina, the strange side of of Catalina. And it's by Jim Watson. I mean, it's just an entire history of paranormal and weirdness on the on the island. He was very helpful. Uh, right off the bat, he sent me photocopies and pictures of the front page newspaper of Catalina Island, and it's a UFO report. It's it's two. This is after World War II. So actually, this is the same week as Roswell. So you had Kenneth Arnold on the 24th, 28th, like that week. And then allegedly there was uh, Maury Island before that. And then if you go and you, and you search like, you know, UFO front page, July, 1947, I think like automatically like six or seven articles will pop up and it's, it's almost a trail of breadcrumbs that, that ends in Roswell. So there, there was this report 
the prior week, and then every other day, like June 3rd, I'm sorry, uh, July 3rd, uh, and then July 4th, July 5th. So, like, on the 3rd, it was, like, Colorado front page. Flying discs seen. Then you go to the next day, and it's, like, another, like, Arizona, New Mexico. And then, I mean, like, every other state in that area, there was a, a sighting. So, the Catalina Island one, it's two airmen that had just r- retired, and there wasn't an Air Force then. It was it was still Army. And uh, they took pictures. And if you get this book, you can see the pictures that they took. And it's of what appears to be a disc. And it was a daytime sighting. These guys are just walking down the beach. One of them happened to have his camera. And there it is. And uh, he sent me the newspaper. He sent me the newspaper article. And he sent me uh, a handwritten uh, account by one of the pilots. So th- this is a very long answer to a very short question, wasn't it? <laughs> All you did was ask me about prior stuff. So, yeah. Sorry, I get really excited talking about this stuff. So well, I'll, I'll keep babbling. I'll, I'll keep babbling about it. No, it's a great topic. I was going to ask, did you um, encounter anything about the purported sea monster? No. So the only thing that I really got okay so when you watch the movie it's all about UFO UAP I tried and I begged begged to get some of this historical stuff in the movie uh, we even shot stuff we shot stuff with, of me telling all this all these stories and we never even we never used any of it they didn't want to confuse people they wanted to make it you know like because of the 2004 Nimitz encounter they kind of wanted to do you know focus only on that kind of just like the Pentagon's doing now. <laughs> They're acting like nothing ever happened before 2004. Um, but even like w- while I was there, like another big, big uh, oddity that I'm into are the giant skeletons. And Catalina Island, man, they're everywhere. They're buried everywhere on that island. That was one question that I would ask. You know, I was I was meeting you know people because people heard we were there. They were coming up. They were introducing themselves. So whenever I got somebody from like City Hall or something like that, I'd be like, hey, so off camera, what can you tell me about the giant skeletons? I'm like, you know, where are they at? And they're like everywhere. They're buried. They're buried everywhere on the island. And the biggest, um, I, I'll say, like grouping of them underground buried, they told me was when they were building the casino, the property the casino is on, I guess, was like a giant mound. And that's where most of the skeletons were. Um, they do have some in museums there. I don't. I didn't get a chance to go look at them, but I, I don't think that they're like the full-on eight or nine footers that you hear about. I think these were just like you know bigger ones. Like they're they don't have it. They don't have a giant skeleton on on display, but they do have in the museum. From what I was told, they do have like uh, pictures and they talk about it. And there's like this one archaeologist who was the guy that discovered all this back in, I think, the 30s or maybe even before then. I forget his name, but uh, he's the one that they actually – that started the museum. It's a, I mean, it's a well-known thing there. It's like no big deal. You know what I mean? Oh, the giant skeletons. Yeah, yeah, they're everywhere. You know, not like in – you know, more more like in the Midwest where people won't even talk about them. You know, it's, it's crazy. Um, so an, another thing that I did was I, I met this other guy – and he owns 
he owns it's a it's a shark cage company. So what he does is he's got a he's got a fleet of boats, and he takes people out. Because uh, what people don't really talk about or know a lot about is that between Guadalupe and Catalina Island, in certain time of the years, it's nothing but great whites. That's where they go to mate. So this guy is a professional diver, and he's actually a producer for Shark Week for Discovery Channel. And he he's actually the person that I, I don't know. Did you ever see the show um, that was about T TTSA, the uh, unidentified? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. So anyway, they there's an episode where they talk about Guadalupe Island out there, and Guadalupe Island is where closer to where the Nimitz encounter happened in 2004. It's government government owned. You can't like go up and walk on it. But that area, it's it's you don't want to fall in the water. Put it, put it that way because you're you're not coming back out. There's so many sharks in there during mating season. And this guy that I became friends with. He was the one that got that found it, and he's the one that got all the scientists out there and made it, you know, like a sanctuary type area. Anyway, um, so he, I, I became friendly with him because, you know, when we originally thought about doing the movie, we thought about doing it on on boats, doing some actual investigation out on the water. So I was calling up, you know, different marinas and different people looking for someone to charter a boat to take us out there. We didn't end up doing it, but I was, but through it, which was great at the end, was me meeting this guy, and I said to him, you know, what what do you hear? You know, you're out on the water. Have you ever heard or have you ever seen anything? And he's like, Are you kidding? He's like, All the time, and he just starts telling me stories that he's gotten from like fishermen captains and you know whaling captains and whale watch captains and different people that work out on the water. And, you know, it's it's another thing that's not talked about because it has the same stigma for these for these sea captains as it is for a pilot to report a sighting. You know, they it's a known thing. They don't talk about it. He did tell me of a couple of stories. And there's one that he told me about this. There was a, a fisherman and his crew were out and it's like four in the morning and everyone's asleep. There is like a guy. The cook is in the is in the galley. And he's got his head down on the table and the captain's, you know, is up on, in, on the, in the, on the wheel and they're, they're following the course. And all of a sudden the entire ship lights up like it's daylight, a big, huge flash of white light that was so bright. It woke everybody up on the boat. So the guy in the galley who had just had his head down, he wasn't really asleep. He was the first one to put to be like, uh, Captain, what was that? And the captain was like, I don't know, but it came from under the water. You know, that's that's one story out of thousands <laughs> that you'll get from that area. Um, another one, uh, this is a kind of um an infamous thing that's been reported over over years of Catalina Island, and it's it's a it's a mysterious green door. So it's just a green door that appears over a mountain, and it just kind of sits there for a little while. <laughs> you know whether or not things have been seen coming in and out of it, I don't know, but it's been reported, seen, and then it disappears. Dude, I'll tell you, I never even heard about the group, the uh, Albacore or whatever that you were talking about. I've never heard that before. 
about a, a group. I'll have to go back and, and listen to those episodes. I didn't hear them. Yeah. Um, I didn't know about that. I wish I would have. Before the CIA, we had the OSS, and they Catalina Island was their training ground. Yeah, during so World. yeah, yeah. So you know, the CIA was all like born on Catalina Island. That whole area, I mean, you know, Pasadena. You've got you know all the crap that Pars Jack Parsons was doing down there, and that whole the whole southern uh, part of California has a lot of weird stuff. Here's, here's a weird one. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Dr. Kit Green. Oh, yeah. So he uh, he had – I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this. Okay, so you I don't think you could find it anymore, but there's a leaked audio. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about, about a leaked audio from Kit Green? Uh, well, I mean, I think there were a couple from him. I mean, you would have to probably be a little more specific. Oh, well, it's, it's about Catalina Island. Uh, all right, I'll, 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 tell, I'll tell it. So for those who don't know, Kit Green is, is the guy that um, he, he replaced Andre Buharich, Andre Buharich. He was the guy that did the weird desk for the CIA, you know, that allegedly, you know, briefed the presidents on UFOs, worked with Hal Putoff and all those people with remote viewing, the whole yada, yada, yada. So he had contacted... Um, Kit Green had contacted what what they thought was when I say they, I mean you know uh, Hal Putoff and you know the whole the whole gang, aviary. Russell Russell Targ, right, right, right. No, no, not the aviary. Did you say the aviary? Yeah, yeah, no green. Yeah, well, yeah, no, no. This was more of an in-house. This I don't think this was aviary. I, I mean, yeah, those these guys are the aviary related, but it wasn't in, in like an aviary thing. I think this was more of an SRI situation it was more of a like i don't know if, i don't know if it was for as much more for more in the 70s or something like that before the AVA. no this this was this was uh more more recent 90s early 2000s okay i have, I have to i'll have to find out exactly when the problem is that I, you I, you can't get the audio anymore so what it was was it was just a link that you could go to and it was an audio recording and then, like, one day I went to show somebody to listen to it, and it was gone. Like, you can't find it on YouTube. You have to get it from somebody. There's not any place that's hosting this thing. So they, they found what – and, like, again, when I say they, I mean, you know, the guys from that group. Well, we'll say – let's say the aviary. Just, just have to keep doing that. We'll say the aviary. So the aviary found what they felt was the most legit and and – Real psychic, and I forget her name. Um, I wish I wish I had written it down at the time. But uh, so they wanted to test her, and they wanted to see if she could find out some information. So he calls her up, and he says to her, "What can you tell me about the area down, you know, down near Catalina Island?" Okay, so. She was supposed to remote view this or whatever she does and then call him back later, whether it was, I don't know how much, whether it was hours, days, weeks, months, I don't know how much longer, but was supposed to contact Kit back and give him the report. And when she did this, she recorded it, not Kit Green. I'm sure he did record it, but this recording comes from her. So, and in this report, she, she says, um, 
there there are beings under the water and they live at a base underwater and the reason that they're there is they're protecting a fault line and obviously there was other little details but that's like the main the main thing and as far as i've learned and from what i've heard from others i mean i'm, I'm sure you've heard it too i mean that's that's one idea is that whatever these things are they have a base underwater out in south southern california i mean people have talked about it for for years what is it the the malibu anomaly out there which is an underwater it looks like an underwater base lou elizondo whether you believe anything he says or not you know he 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 talks about rumblings in the pentagon of of people talking about there's something underwater I, I only spent a week out there doing this stuff and I saw some shit that I don't know what it was. I know what it wasn't. I know what I saw and what I filmed. It wasn't a plane. It wasn't a helicopter. wasn't a balloon. It wasn't the ISS. You know, I don't know what it was. I know what it wasn't. And I, I mean, personally, when people say to me, you know, what do you think aliens are? What do I, you know, where do I think they come from? What do I think? I don't think they're from space. I, I think it's a possibility. I think whatever they are is either from here or it is from someplace else, I think, which would I lean more towards dimensionally. I, I think I think it's something that's either from another dimension or something that's been here the entire time. And I think it lives in our oceans, in our volcanoes, and underground. That they maybe not doesn't isn't from there, but that's where there's that's where they're at now. Like that's where they've set up shop. I'm not into the whole ETH at all. I mean, it's I can't say you know they're not because nobody really knows. But in my personal opinion, I don't think they're from space. I think there there would be too much traffic for all the UFO reports that happen daily. I mean, if they were coming from space, whether they have like wormholes or not it would look like the 101 on a friday afternoon with all the traffic coming down in the sky well just to add a few things like so yeah, uh, yeah. one of the things that the uh the tuna club of avalon had mentioned is members yes. have currently seen this bizarre sea monsters it was described um for years while they were out in their fishing expeditions and it was described as coming from the uh the santa clemente island is that how it's pronounced clemente clemente yes so, which is really interesting, um, again, so Catalina Island during World War II was closed to the public, like Dave was saying, it became a major training ground for the OSS, and uh, Clemente was also taken over by the Navy, uh, previously the Tuna Club of Avalon, it actually had sort of like a small port there where they would send members out to. Yeah, Gu Guadalupe, they use Guadalupe as well. So Clemente, like, that became a pretty significant naval base. Uh, I mean, I believe they've tested a lot of weaponry, like the Polaris is there, the Navy SEALs do training there. So that's kind of like another thing about this you have to keep in mind is to this day, that's still a very significant naval base that's like right there in the middle of all of this. And uh, just, just, to, just to, I don't know if this is where you're getting at, but I'm looking and I'm, I'm cheating right now. So I'm sorry. I had to look in the book for the sea monster and I found it. And it's the Clemente monster. Yes. 
I yeah. just thought that. So was... go ahead, fin finish, finish. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, it's fine. I just thought that was lovely because I mean, yes, they've got the um the sea monster and they've got the <laughs> uh the giant skeletons. I mean, pretty much like a little bit of everything. And I mean, they've even got Bigfoot reports, you know, which doesn't surprise me because Bigfoot is seen everywhere. Yeah, I was going to say, of course, they've got the Bigfoot reports. That yeah, I mean, it would almost uh, yeah. be disappointing if they didn't. I was curious. I mean, if you ever remember the name of the psychic, it would really be something of that. Yeah, I do. Trust me, I know, man. I, I, I would, I would kill. If dude. anybody listening has that audio, please contact me. I would love to get it again. I had gotten it from. I had gotten it from Grant Cameron, is where I got it from. Sorry, Grant. I out. I, I, I'm giving you up. <laughs> I mean, it would be really crazy if it was uh, Joni Dorf, who was the psychic, who was one of the co-heads of the firm SciTech, which I think was one of the, I think it was General Albertine Stubbeline, Albert Stubbeline, or whatever his name was, who had founded it, who was another one of the, you know, kind of people tied in with the military uh, forays into remote viewing. Um, but she's a really interesting figure. Um, among other things, she was married to Brad Dorf. Um, the oh, crazy. And uh, she... Uh, oh, I'm thinking, a, wait, you said, you mean like Brad Dorif? From Chucky, yeah, yeah. And they oh, have that's crazy, yeah. I know, his, I, know, I know his daughter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, no, her, no, her mother was a psychic and she was tied in. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it's pretty nuts. That's why I was wondering because she was based, uh, the mother, uh, Joni Dorf, was based out of um, Hawaii, uh, Maui for a lot of years along with L.A., uh, and like I said, she was one of the um, co-heads of SciTech, which was one of the big kind of private companies that they started in the mid-90s when Stargate was shuttered. So, yeah, huh. there's a lot of interesting stuff with that. It would definitely be curious if she was. The there, there's a lot. There's a lot of tie-ins between celebrities and this stuff back then. You know, another crazy kind of weird thing is how, well, William Shatner's in, in our documentary. I've known him for, for years. I used to book all the Comic-Cons internationally I, I booked a lot of um you know san diego anything from san diego comic-con australia i booked them all over the world and i became very uh good friends with with walter Coeg and a lot of the other cast members from the original star trek and it turned out that the uh for um forrest kelly who played the original uh bones was a witness to the um the battle of la when he was oh, a little really? kid yeah. Yeah. There's actually uh, an interview that I found with him talking about it. And it was on uh, Art Bell had Area 2000, which was before Coast to Coast. And he had him on the show. And I found the episode where he talks about it after, after I heard about it. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Fascinating. Well, let's start getting into the events here that unfolded in uh, 2004 here. So, um, I'm sure a lot of people are kind of familiar with this, but could you take us through the uh, first UFO sightings, at least that the Navy officially acknowledged off of Catalina in 04? Yeah, 2004, the USS Nimitz, the Princeton, and, and just so maybe people that aren't really sure or aren't, can't really focus on what I'm, what I'm describing and talking about, very famous videos and, and famous pictures. It's of the, the Tic Tac UFO, the gimbal, and the go fast. And I'm talking about all the images and information that was released in 2017 in the New York Times by Leslie Keen and Ralph Blumenthal. And that's where we got the, all this information. Well, it was out before then, but that's where the videos really were made public. It's, that's, what, that's the Nimitz encounter. They were out doing 
practice and they're they were doing you know like war game type of stuff out there kevin day who was the radar operator had been seeing what he wasn't sure what they were for two weeks they were, he was having you know like strange radar contact and then it, it finally breaks down where for two weeks it was happening the last day of this event which which is what they call the nimitz encounter you had a uh, pilot david fravor alex dietrich and chad underwood uh were up and they were in their in their jets and they see these things and they describe them as being giant tic tacs a white oval object that was like the size of a, a big refrigerator they were chasing these things around and they couldn't get locks on them they felt that they knew where they were going like when Fravor had said to one of the co one of the pilots, "I'll meet you back at the cap point, which is where, if you're looking at a 3D chessboard, it's kind of a point in space or in the sky, a pre-planned meet point that these guys have, so they don't they're not saying over the air, you know, let's meet over this place. They call it a cap point, and they go to to go there, and the, the tic tac is there waiting for them." And, you know, so it, they felt like this thing was reading their minds, um, whatever it was. But, yeah, so, I mean, that's basically the story. Um, you know, the thing took off and went under the water. And, and from what we know, that was the last of the encounter that happened on, on Catalina. Or not on Catalina, but out, in, out that way in the Pacific Ocean in 2004. So what were some of the additional sightings off of Catalina that had happened since 2004? Wow. Okay. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, you're talking about just in general or military? Oh, uh, well, let's like go with the military now. I mean, I'm sure if we were like, yeah, going to try to get into the civilian ones as well, we'd be here all day. I really offhand can't think of any spectacular sightings that have happened since 2004. I mean, I think there was like, well, there was a, I mean, it wasn't Catalina Island, but the, the infamous Jeremy Corbell, quote unquote, 29 Palms triangle photo that came out a year ago. I mean, that was down that way. We still don't know if that, what that was, if it was flares or if it was whatever, like most videos, <laughs> videos mean nothing to me anymore or photos. Anything can be manipulated to, to the point now. I mean, it's we don't even need to go there, put it that way, especially now with AI crap like that. When did the UAPX become interested in the island and how many investigations have they conducted there thus far? Oh, oh man, this is a touchy subject. So I'm not a member of that group anymore. I was for a couple of years. I was one of the vice presidents. I handled all the media, all the TV stuff for the group. Let me back up and I'll explain like how I met, met those guys and, and so forth. Like I had mentioned at the time I was booking comic cons and I had, I had met a guy and I became friends with him and his name is, uh, it's David O'Leary. And David is the creator of the TV show project blue book from history channel. You remember that show? Yeah, very underrated, actually. Yeah, great show. Great show. 
I met David and I had been introduced to him prior to the, I mean, I got a phone call from my, my business partner at the time and, and she's like, Oh, did you hear so-and-so's doing this show project blue book? And I'm like, what? I freaked out and I immediately was like, <laughs> I got to find out more. So yeah. So anyway, David and I became friends and we hit it off. I had gotten a call. This was, I was not really in ufology. I was on the fringe of it. Like I was, I mean, I've always been into it my entire life. I've been into this stuff. I mean, I was a, a sci-fi kid, you know, when my parents got divorced um, after school, I go to my grandmother's and she was the, the head librarian for the local library. And after school, I would just go get dropped off there and I would sit in the UFOs and Universal Monsters section for hours reading about Bigfoot and UFOs. So I've always been into it. So, you know, I, I, I met him and right away, you know, I was like, are you guys doing this case, doing this case, doing this case? So people had, people had found out that, that we were friends and what I did. So I started getting calls from UFO conferences. And um, one that I got was from, was from Laughlin. And this was in 2000, probably, it was right after the New York Times article. So it had to be 2017, maybe early 2018. We went out and and uh, David did an appearance in Vegas and Laughlin at the UFO conference. And uh, I went with him. And that's when I first met like George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell and like friggin' Rick Doty was there. And yeah, so, so uh, I, I had actually been following the Nimitz encounter thing. And, and uh, I have another good friend of mine. His name is uh, Martin Willis. And Martin has a UFO podcast, um, which is a great one. And it's uh, it's just I think it's what is it the U it's just called the UFO podcast it's on YouTube. And Martin um, was interviewing Kevin Day, and I said to Martin, "Hey, do me a favor. Can you connect me with Kevin? Because I'm going out to 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 Laughlin, and I'd love to talk to him." So. He, he did, and we messaged a few times, and I said, hey, you know, David O'Leary and I are coming out. Love to talk to you, meet up. So we go out there, and I had I had missed the – they were doing a, a group talk of – it was like Gary Voorhees, Kevin Day, Jason Turner, PJ Hughes. These were all the guys that were the quote-unquote witnesses that were not pilots. These were just crewmen radar people or, you know, and so forth that, that were involved with, with the sighting. I missed their lecture. We got there a little late, but uh, we did end up meeting. And then David O'Leary and Kevin Day and myself went outside and, and we started talking. Kevin had asked me for some advice because this is when the New York Times story was very big. It had just been only been out a few months. And he's like, could use your help. I'm getting bombarded by media. And I don't know what to do. He's like, I don't know which ones I should do, which ones I shouldn't do. He's like, help. And I was, was like, the guys, if anybody knows Kevin or knows anything about him or has met him, this is like one of the nicest guys you'll ever talk to or meet in your life. 
you know, so not only is he like the nicest guy ever when I met him, but he's a, a vet, a Navy veteran. I mean, and this guy could have asked me for anything. I wasn't going to say no. <laughs> you need my you need a kidney? Here you go. So he's like, can you help me? And I was like, sure. I, you know, I gave him my number and I'm like, if anybody calls you, feel free to give them my number or whatever. That was it, man. Uh, <laughs> for me, it became like a full-time job. When, you know, when we had spoken previously a couple of days ago, we were talking about when, you know, me being an agent and I, I was an agent in the past, but I haven't been in a few years. So I became an agent quote unquote, or a manager for all those guys. So I handled all their TV appearances, all of their podcast interviews and all their meet, all their news interviews um, for them. And that is how th that particular part of my life started. I mean, pretty much that's what got me into doing the, the work I, I'm doing now because during those years is when I met a lot of these producers from Ancient Aliens and all, all these different shows. And that's how I, I got started developing and, and doing production and consult work. But anyway, so out of those core people, which were the Nimitz guys and the guys from the Princeton, Kevin Day, PJ Hughes, Gary Voorhees, Jason Turner. Kevin had wanted to, to Kevin Day had wanted to put a group together that had witnesses, researchers, scientists, the best of the best that they could get to put a group together. They wanted to go back out to where the Nimitz encounter happened and do an actual investigation with state-of-the-art technology and great minds. And it was a nonprofit. And at that time, I mean, anybody off the street could walk up to Kevin Day and be like, hey, can I join your group? Kevin would be like, yes. When it was just an idea, Kevin wasn't, you know, like I said, this is the nicest guy ever. He wouldn't say no to you. Because it was it was just something that was a dream at the time. We ended up kind of making it a real group probably about a year after I had first met them in Laughlin. And this is my opinion. You know, those guys might say their opinion is it was a real group from day one. But it wasn't really a real group like it like it was when I left until a, a while, until at least a year after. And when I mean, when I officially joined, I mean, there was probably like 30 people whose, whose name was on the list of, of being associated. And when I left, I mean, it was down to the core group of probably nine, which was the official group. I became one of the vice presidents and I handled all of the media. Just like I was doing as an agent, I did it for the group as a whole and as separate, you know. So if a TV show only wanted one of them, I would do it for the one of them. If they wanted the group, it was the group. That's, that's how the movie came about. Um, I was doing media for us. And we had, you know, the, the big problem that we had was until we have the funding we were only a, a, a non-working group you know what i mean like we we couldn't go out and just do an expedition because it's very very expensive 
one of the best people that that I left that group knowing and and very good friends with to talk to almost on a daily basis and that's David Mason and he's the science engineer electrical engineer that owns and invented a lot of the equipment pretty much all the equipment <laughs> that would be used in the in the movie that's Dave Mason's stuff and I mean you know he brought out hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of state-of-the-art night vision and detectors for you know cosmic watch i mean you name i mean just all the gear everything i mean this guy has so much stuff that he's another one that that, that he gets phone calls probably on a daily basis to to do something to be on some show i know i worked with him on getting him on skinwalker ranch i originally had gotten him out there for one episode and he ended up filming five that's how much stuff this guy's got that they were so impressed with his gear. He goes out there to film one episode and he ends up doing five episodes. He's a, he's guy's a genius. So I had gotten a message one day and it was from Caroline Corey, who is in the UFO community and she's a director, producer, all that good stuff. She focuses mainly on the UFO topic in her, in her films and she's like, hi, Dave. Um, my friend Ben Hansen told me about you and your group. Can you give me a call? I'd love to talk to you about what you guys are doing. So at the time, I kind of brushed it off only because I knew how these guys, and I'm just going to be honest, these guys had this big sighting. And at the time, there were like these new UFO celebrities, but they didn't know shit about UFOs. They didn't know... I mean, just an example, I had asked Gary Voorhees, I think, a question on, like, some case. Well, I think it might have been Kecksburg, and he didn't know. He's like, what do you mean? What's Kecksburg? It was hard for me to be like, okay, here's this person that's contacting us, wanting to do something. Their specialty is this, or their specialty is this case, or this part of ufology. They didn't know anything of what the hell I was talking about. So... I made, I had to make a lot of like executive decisions because I knew it was good for the group, even though they might not have. And it was kind of one of those things where I know they're going to thank me later. You know, we had been, we had been trying to do uh, work on donations. We figured we needed probably around $2 million to do the expedition. And that was to get, fly everybody out there. And I'm not even talking about filming it. I'm talking about just for us to do the expedition just to go out there and do it, we were thinking about $2 million. So we started, you know, we, we, we got, we got our, um, our nonprofit status from the government and, you know, we started pounding the pavement that way. And uh, we're, we weren't getting very far. You know, we got a lot of calls of people wanting to, you know, that did donate or they did want to donate their time or whatever. And, and then, you know, just when we were starting to kind of get, bummed out i get this message and i get on a phone call and and she's like hey i'll pay for your expedition let me film it so right away i was like hell yeah definitely and then i had to go back to to those guys and i won't say which one but there was a member that was like oh no we don't want to hollywood can't be involved and all that stuff 
people people use that as an excuse, but a big part of the problem with them not wanting to do this is because these some of the guys they aren't into any of the consciousness part of this and I and I and I don't mean that in a way where in their personal lives they don't talk about it or, or research it or whatever like a big part of the movie and at this part I do agree with we wanted this to be as scientifically based as possible for the expedition so we didn't want to do like any CE5 experiments or anything like that only because you know we were working with people from NASA on this and, 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 you know, they didn't want to bring any of the woo into it. And I get it. You know what I mean? I get it. But at the same time there, you know, where some of them are into it, some of them are flat out like prejudice. Like they prejudge people that work in certain fields of ufology. So at the time they didn't want to work all the same. They didn't want to work with Caroline. It pretty much came down to us and them, the guys in the group, to be like, okay, we'll do it, but here's the things that we don't want type of things. And she she obliged, definitely. She, you know, she was very cool about all that stuff. To put it lightly, if it wasn't for Caroline Corey, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a UAPX because the movie never would have been made. That's the only investigation we ever did as a group some of the guys had done episodes of Skinwalker Ranch and maybe one or two other things. But as far as a UAPX investigation, that was the only official one. And of course, just like every other UFO group, and you can quote me or quote actually Greg Bishop <laughs> on this, like any UFO group, working group, whether it be MUFON or, or whoever, eventually implodes and eats itself and destroys itself. He even jokes about, is, is it like the trickster? Is the trickster the one who's behind putting UFO groups together? Because even even if they succeed in their findings, they eventually, in one way or another, get destroyed. I don't, I don't want to get into all the the bad stuff that has happened with UAPX. People can look that up for themselves and see what see what some of them have been accused of. Well, out of curiosity, besides what's in the film, did you have any other crazy experiences uh, while you guys were in the midst of the investigation? That didn't so, yeah. So that, I'm glad that you asked that question. So there was a big boo-boo when production decided to put me on an island for a week. <laughs> All right. So my my team, quote-unquote, was was me and Michael Hall, and Chrissy Newton was only there for like a day or two. She's the fe my, my friend, the female journalism journalist from uh, the debrief. Uh, she came out with us, uh, her and her little pup, B. It was me and Michael and Chrissy on the island and our, our camera guy. And, and then on Laguna was everybody else. This was during COVID, at the height of COVID, when we decided to do this. And Michael had to go through daily kidney dialysis. <laughs> all right. He had his dialysis machine. He had all that stuff that goes with it to do the dialysis. And he walks with a cane 
had just had surgery and can't even carry his ca own camera bag or his laptop. So I got dropped off on an island with Michael Hall, his dialysis <laughs> stuff, and a camera guy. And they don't even like allow cars on Catalina Island. We had so much gear, like put it this way okay so every day to shoot on top we shot on on hotel roofs that we stayed on which had 14 15 floors where it was only me and the, our camera guy to carry the gear up all these floors every day so by the time i got the gear up and this is july in california southern california on a roof okay do you know how hot it was <laughs> to do this Michael couldn't carry anything. So the first day, it takes me three hours, and we finally got everything up there. By the time I get everything up there and set up, I don't even want to film anymore. I'm just so exhausted. I don't want to do anything but go to sleep. So the first time I saw something through the night vision, I freaked out. And I'm like, oh, my God. How do, what do I hit to start recording? Well, they chopped us off with night vision. They didn't drop us off with any way to record the night vision. All right. So all the videos that you see are because Michael Hall was like, hey, let's try recording the night vision goggles from our cell phones. So I'd have to see something through the night vision and then take my cell phone and hold it up the little hole in the phone to put through the hole to see the night vision and that's how that recorded if it wasn't for that there probably wouldn't have been a movie because that's how we saw everything that's how we recorded everything was through the cell phones so what the stuff that i saw like you see that when you see the night vision and like the illuminated object like if i moved the goggles away that object would be gone Everything that I saw was not visible to the eye. Everything that I recorded where I'm like, that is something, I don't know what that is, couldn't be seen with the naked eye. Um, so there were hours of stuff that I had seen that didn't make it because we hadn't figured out how to record with the phone yet. <laughs> there was one object that I saw with my eyes that was like a white sphere, typical white looking sphere that I saw with my eyes right at dusk one night that I couldn't, it was too fast. It was one of those fleeting moment things. So the answer is yes. I, I personally saw stuff that I don't know what it was that wasn't in the movie. I, don't, I didn't hear anybody else really talk about anything but yeah, uh, there was definitely some stuff that was seen that unfortunately we couldn't put in the movie because we didn't know how to record it at the time yet. What was the response from the military and the national security circles like in regards to the film? Originally, we had discussed contacting the Navy because the guys were like, some of them thought, oh, well, if we contact them, maybe we could, they'll take us out on their one of their ships or something which i knew was never going to happen i was like you know is it really a good idea to contact anybody let alone the military 
to let them know we're going to be out there. We, we didn't want to announce to anybody when we were going to be there and where because we didn't want to give anybody the opportunity to come out and try and hoax us to make us look like idiots. We didn't want idiot to be like, uh -huh, I'll, I'll show them. I'll go out there and I'll use my drone. You know what I mean? And they'll know where we are. That's what, that's what we didn't want. Far as anything, I've never heard anything about the military even <laughs> acknowledging when we were, <laughs> we were there. You know, there are some times in the film where they're like, there were helicopters going over us and stuff like that. Not where I was, but on the Laguna side, and, and they were all like, ooh, spooky, unmarked black helicopters. But yeah, I never heard anything about the military. You know, the only thing that was ever done was during when we were looking at sightings, you know, was this something military? Well, you know, we were following where jet, certain aircraft were or the ISS, stuff like that. You know, but we we didn't notify him. I wasn't aware of us being notified by anything like that. At the end of uh, Terror, some of the researchers became convinced that they had witnessed one of these UAPs opening uh, what they effectively describe as a wormhole. If this is what was actually recorded, it is uh, is it due solely to the UAP or is it a combination of the UAP and the location? I mean, in other words, is Catalina Island possibly a kind of window area, so to speak? So as far as that wormhole thing is concerned, I mean, we don't we still don't know what it was. Some of us are still think it could be a smudge on the screen. The only and it, a funny thing is, is you know that that video is one of the biggest talking points of the film. And what and what's kind of funny is that Caroline had named a tear in the sky as the title before we even went out there. So people automatically think, oh, it's called a tear in the sky because of that. It had nothing to do with that. And it was called a wormhole because there was no other way to explain it. Like you just said, it, could it be a window area? So it wasn't like she was going to be, you know, she, she didn't want to be Stargate. The only way to really describe it would be wormhole. And it wasn't because really that's what everybody thought it was. It was just the best way to be explained or describe what it could be. To this day, we don't know what it was. I'm not saying it wasn't that, but it hasn't been proven to be anything at this point. But to answer your window area question, I think it's definitely a high strangest window, like another Point Pleasant or Skinwalker or Marley Woods or the Meadows. It's some, an area of, of, of extreme high strangeness for sure. Well, that's, uh, you know, also why I find that because I was not aware of all of the high weirdness around here until I had actually just sort of inadvertently stumbled upon one of your tweets that had mentioned the Catalina Islands in regards to the movie. And then I had started looking into it. And, you know, as I kind of uh, suggested earlier, my interest in Catalina was mainly tied to a lot of the uh, the parapolitical implications of it. Yeah. And please, I before we 
I will start rambling again. I would like just to hear a little bit more about that group. We yeah, never, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the the big family really that drove this and the creation of a lot of these other um, elite clubs in the LA area, like the California Club and the Jonathan Club. I mean, I'm sure you're probably familiar with both of those. For those of you listening to this have never heard of the, these are really big kind of quote unquote gentlemen's clubs within Los Angeles. Uh, they've had a bit of a rivalry, I guess, even though they have a lot of overlap in membership. And the same is uh, true of uh, the Tuna Club of Avalon. And there are a lot of significant figures who were active in all three. Um, I think David Starr Jordan, the big guy at Stanford, who was the dean there, also a member of Bohemian Grove, for instance, had overlap in a lot of these groups. But the Bannon family were really the big movers and shakers and starting almost all of these. Hancock Bannon was a co-founder of the Jonathan Club. The family was huge with the Tuna Club, and uh, they also had a very significant role in um, the California Club. And this isn't surprising because the Bannons were really the first uh, major power family in that region. Um, the patriarch Phineas Bannon is pretty much the guy who created uh, the modern day port of Los Angeles as we know it. And had really had to fight off quite a bit of um, opposition because obviously San Diego has a much better natural port. But it was a long-time um, obsession with the Banning family to create the whole port of L.A. and essentially establish it as a beachhead there. And Banning is an interesting guy. He came from back in the East Coast, and he actually uh, was an in-law through family connections with the DuPont family. So I generally speculated that he was probably able to buy up so much land in the Southern California area, uh, in part because he was essentially working as an agent for the DuPonts. Now, but anyway, they were uh, the big movers and shakers in this island until a little after the First World War, and they, there was a lot of other overlap with these other groups. Again, I think Hancock Bannon, for instance, was also a member of the Bohemian Society in San Francisco and so forth. And then um, after that, they sold the island effectively to the Wrigley family. And then the Wrigleys became sort of the patriarchs of uh, the Tuna Club of Avalon. And again, the Wrigleys are just, they're huge. I mean, this goes with the, uh, was it the Wrigley Chewing Gum where they made their four? Yep. Club, and then later they owned the Cubs and just a lot of other stuff. So this was the family that would have been owning these uh, facilities around the time of World War II. So they would have uh, inevitably been in close contact with the government about um, some of the uh, things that they were doing there. But yeah, it's it's interesting that you do see a lot of these kind of blue bloods setting up shop and a lot of these gentlemen's clubs here, and especially with the rather curious connection with Catalina Island and the history of high strangeness there. It, it almost makes me it almost makes me think about about the nine. Yeah, you know, in, I mean, in a way. It, well, especially because you had a lot more of like the Hollywood circles active in the Tuna Club as opposed to like say, yeah. the, the Jonathan Club, because I mean, Charlie Chaplin was a member, Stan Laurier, uh, Cecil B. DeMille, Marx, Max Sennett. I mean, basically all of the major people who built Hollywood up in the silent era. So um, so what was the, what was what was what was their like mission or you know what I mean? Like, what was their goal? 
Well, theoretically, it was just a, you know, a fishing club, essentially. I mean, all of these blue bloods were going out there uh, to go fish, you know, for tuna. For <laughs> yeah, okay. Which, again, like, makes no sense at all. I mean, it again, sounds like, not not to be gross, but it sounds more like an Epstein thing when you say well, it that exactly way. That's <laughs> exactly the thing when you look at this. Because, again, okay, so for those of you listening to this, okay, so Catalina Island, I mean, it's still pretty isolated to this day. But back then, I mean, it was extremely isolated. I mean, only the rich. Back then, you couldn't, you, I don't think you could go there you know what i mean yeah, unless you, you were somebody like that stuff i mean yeah exactly um in fact and i think the bannings pretty much had like private guards that were all around the island as well for a lot of years and yeah i mean when you look into that like you're suggesting there well i mean take a look at a guy like max Sennett. i mean this is the guy who founded keystone um there were a lot of rumors that some of the um actresses there were being used for honeypots effectively a real famous example that was uh, thelma todd and then on top of that um, black dahlia <laughs> yeah well this was a little later but yeah max yeah, I, know, I know i know i know I'm just, well. that's, that's what i think that's what i think of you yeah know what I mean? yeah and then if if kenneth anger is to be believed max Sennett was also the one who essentially invented the casting couch in hollywood this went into his whole bathing beauties thing that was kind of like the first pinups with hollywood celebrities and the rumors with the women i think i think shakespeare invented that actually well, yeah i mean <laughs> like i said max Sennett was the one who theoretically invented it in hollywood but i mean again yeah yeah there is a lot of possibilities that some of this i think i think the first the guy who invented or not i shouldn't say invented the guy who was the very first director ever <laughs> invented the casting couch <laughs> But it was a situation where definitely, I mean, you know, again, Charlie Chaplin, his career was started by Senate. Chaplin was married four times. I believe only three of his wives or uh, only one of his only one of his wives was of legal age at the time when he originally became involved with them. So, yeah, when you look at some of the stuff, the guys like Max Senate and Charlie Chaplin were getting up to in the mainland. And then you sort of wonder about what they might have been doing in these really isolated, this isolated island besides maybe just catching fish. There's a lot of dark stuff that you could definitely go. I mean, that that almost it also makes you think about like Dave McGowan's books of of, of Hollywood and and stuff that happened in Laurel Canyon. In a way, there's that connection again of of the the military and the government and the Pentagon involved with these celebrities doing really weird shit. <laughs> you know, this was like kind of like Laurel Canyon before there was Laurel Canyon, but yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys like eventually did kind of build up that area around Echo Park and then obviously Silver Lake too, which is another one. But yeah, it's um, it's pretty crazy. I've often wondered if there was a specific reason why that was chosen because, like, you know, I was kind of alluding to, I mean, LA doesn't really have a great natural harbor, you had to you know bring in just mounds of water uh, to keep it irrigated and so forth. I mean. It you know really was an island in the desert for many years, which would have provided a lot of convenient cover if there was some sketchy stuff going on there. But again, I can't help but wonder if there was something else about the area. Yeah, like like why you know was it because it was a private and secluded area, or was it because it, they knew that that it was a window area? It's kind of a chicken egg type of thing. I think the the crazy the craziest thing I've ever heard about L.A and anything kind of paranormal would be the alleged uh, underground tunnels under LA, which were supposed to be inhabited by lizards. And you can actually find newspaper articles from 
the 30s and 40s that talk about an underground city in LA with like reptile people. Yeah, no, I've seen that. Yeah, that's another thing. A lot of the long rumored like underground tunnels in LA and some possibly like some prehistoric civilization or something down there. I guess it's yeah. keeping with the giant skeletons on Catalina Island, I guess. Oh, as a bonus question here is what we wrap up in a bit of a lighter note. Uh, so what was the crew's reaction when William Shatner started talking about whales? So I wasn't there for that recording. It's funny. Um, you know, I've, I've, like I said, I've, I've known Bill for over 10 years and I've, I've, I've worked on uh, his TV show for a couple episodes and he probably has no idea that I was in the movie and has no idea I worked on his show. <laughs> but if I ever see him again and I tell him, he's going to be like, I didn't even know that. That's crazy. And I doubt he sat down and watched the terror in the sky. He might've, he's not, he's not really fond of me. <laughs> so I was working. You ever see the show or hear of the show sons of anarchy? Oh yeah. I've never watched yeah. it. But I know exactly. What yeah. About. So I, I, I worked with uh, Charlie Hunnan and he's the, he was the star of the show. He played Jax. We, we were doing a Sons of Anarchy reunion. And the whole cast was there, you know, like Ron Perlman and everybody was there. And it was at a, a Comic-Con in Houston. And it was Charlie's first appearance ever. And I think he was getting paid probably around a million dollars for it. And what happened was... The guy who ran the convention took off with all the money. <laughs> he, he robbed he robbed the entire convention and he took off with all of the all the cash, all of the uh, the credit card stuff was safe. But I mean, millions about five million in cash he took off of, and with and it was money that that was to be paid to Shatner and all the other celebrities and. So uh, as b being a rep for the for Charlie and, and the Suns guys and it being a quote-unquote biker show, all of a sudden this happened because of us. Shatner was kind of saying to me, this is all your guys' fault. <laughs> and I'm like, this isn't our fault. How are we supposed to know this guy was going to take off with the money? Yeah, that was, that was a crazy time, man. And ever since then i've never seen i've never seen him in person again but i've worked on all these projects and he probably has no idea which i think is hilarious get back to your question is after we filmed the movie uh caroline was like oh this needs something else i had tried you know one of my best friends is Corey feldman you know and at the time i was trying to get Corey to be in the Corey was actually going to come down I had talked. I had talked to a few different celebrity friends that wanted to come down just because they love UFOs and they wanted to do the investigation. They didn't care about you know being in the movie. They could care less. But during the time, like I said, it was during COVID, and to get out on the island, it was a nightmare at the time just to get out there. And they ended up you know not coming out, not being able to make it. So at, afterwards, Caroline was like, you know, we should put somebody in this to kind of give it a little bit more. And Caroline uh, at the time was working a lot with Prometheus. So it was very easy for her to connect with, with Shatner and his people. So 
after the movie was done, she had set up another um, studio and filmed all that stuff with just her and Shatner. I think maybe three or four of the guys that live locally were able to go down there and meet him, but the rest of the team had already flown out, so they didn't get to meet him. So you're saying that she wasn't keeping him appraised the entire time of the investigation? No, he no, he probably only knows what what you see in on those scenes. Yeah, no, that was fairly obvious from watching the documentary. Yeah, but it was it definitely does add a lot. Here, here's the one thing that was smart about putting him in is that because of him being in the movie, when it came out it, and when it like, first came out on Amazon, it was in the documentary and science fiction section because of Shatner being in it. So it, that's how it was so successful it, because it wasn't just in one category. The sci-fi nerds saw it in the sci-fi section and the UFO nerds saw it in the documentary section, it got a lot more traction from that. And plus, it's great for me to be able to say, hey, I was in a movie with William Shatner. I like that. Oh, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Well, all right, on that note, we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>
Civilization. 